Um, it's good to be back with you. Uh, most of you are aware that Michelle and I had the privilege of being in Adelaide over this week, uh, where we met our granddaughter for the first time. And uh, people did say to me, you wait, it's going to affect you more than what you think. And, um, and I said, no, it won't, no, it won't. Well, I can assure you it did. It was um, an incredible experience. And um, yeah, it was one that we look forward to. Um, but thank you for everyone who prayed for us, and, uh, but it's, it's great to be back. Wish it was a little bit warmer, but uh, the sun is shining. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever done a quiz and you've been asked the question, what would you like your last words on earth to be? What statement would you like to leave with those you love the most? What challenge would assist them in seeing clearly the responsibility of life or where you wanted them to go? What encouragement would stimulate them to accept it? Well, here's some few. Elvis Presley's last words was, I'm going to the bathroom to read. Alfred Hitchcock on his deathbed said, one never knows the ending. One has to die to know exactly what happens after death, although Catholics have their hopes. Murderer James W. Rogers was put in front of a firing squad and asked if he had any last request. His last words were, yes, bring me a bulletproof vest. <laughs> Joseph Addison, an English essayist, poet, playwright and politician said, see what peace a Christian can have when they die. Blues singer Johnny H was playing with a gun. His last words were, don't worry, it's not loaded. Artist Leonardo da Vinci said, I've offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality that it should have. According to Steve Jobs' sister, Mona, the Apple's founder's last words were, oh well, oh well, oh well. Jesus himself on the cross said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Compare that to Buddha. His last words were, work hard to gain your salvation. What would you like your last words to be? Well, it's a tough one because none of us know when our last words would be. However, Jesus did. Jesus was here for 40 days after his resurrection and said different things to different people. But at the end of his 40 days, Jesus knew that his time to return to his heavenly father was close. He knows that he will be leaving the earth soon. He knows the opportunity he has to share with his loved ones would soon be his last. So he gives his disciples some very important final destruction instructions as his last words. The words he leaves with his friends are found in those verses that Wes read out before, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. And it says this. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And as surely I am with you always to the very ends of the earth. I'm sure you are all aware that this passage in Matthew, as Wes said, is usually called the Great Commission. And I'm quite sure you're all aware that this passage is often preached at mission services or mission months. 
Well, I want to be no different. To kick off our mission month, I want to look at this passage. As I just said, this passage is often called the Great Commission. But let me ask you this. Why do we put the word great there? Do you think this statement is greater than any of the other statements that Jesus said about in, in the, that are recorded in the Gospels? Well, I'm sure you would say no. So with that in mind, that's why if you read Packy Life, you would see I told in my sermon today what's so great about the Great Commission. Well, for me, I see five great truths in this passage that we as followers of Jesus can be encouraged by, uplifted by and challenged by. Now, I know some believe that we can't take what Jesus is saying here to his disciples and claim it as words to us. But in some ways, I disagree. I think this declaration can and does apply to us as believers today. I believe we can take what Jesus said here and apply it to us today. And these are the five great truths that we can take from this statement of Jesus. And the first one is this, a great response. Jesus had told his disciples to go to Mount Galilee, a place which they would have been very familiar with. Mount Galilee was probably the place where the transfiguration took place. The disciples, especially Peter, James and John, would never forget that event. In this quiet and beautiful retreat setting, Jesus would reveal himself and his mission to his disciples. Verse 17 tells us what the disciples' response was when they saw Jesus. It is this, when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him. Now, just before we glance over these words and say, yeah, well, of course he did, I think it's important to take some time to see how special this act was. I think this passage that they saw Jesus and worshipped him speaks volumes to me. I think this is a very bold statement for two great reasons. Firstly, these men were worshipping and bowing before Jesus are the ones who knew him best. These disciples spent day and night with him for three years. They'd seen him face tremendous challenges and opportunities and opposition. They'd seen him when things were going well and they were with him when things were going so well. They'd seen him when circumstances and opponents were closing in all around him. They'd seen him when miracles were at his left hand and his right hand and they'd seen how people wanted to make him king. So they knew him more than most other people in the history of the world. And what are they doing? They're worshipping him. I can tell you, I went back to Adelaide, I caught up with some friends who know me quite intimately. Not one of them came close to worshipping me. In fact, I think I'm in no danger at all of going and meeting people who know me, of worshipping me. Yet, these people that knew Jesus the most, this was the great response that they had to him. They worshipped him. Add something else to the fact. Secondly, this is one of the first mentions recorded in scripture of the, of the disciples as a whole worshipping him. Why do I find this interesting? because these men are Jews. This would mean they would follow the Ten Commandments quite strictly. So for these men, the First and Second Commandments would have forbidden them giving worship to anyone other than the one 
true God. For a devout Jew, worship is reserved for the Lord God alone. Yet here they are, his closest friends, the ones who know him intimately, bowing down and worshipping him, even as devout Jews. This is the challenge I get from this. If these men who personally knew Jesus best would bow and proclaim him as Lord and the one true God, if these men who personally knew Jesus best would give him that great response of their worship, of bowing down their life, then what should that say to us who only know him by spiritual eyes of faith? We're in a different position. However, we must join them in worshipping Jesus as Lord and God. In our heart, if our heart and mind will capture Jesus Christ, who he really is, it will produce worship in us. They knew him intimately, personally. They also knew the law. You must not worship anyone other than God. What are they doing when they see him on this mountain? They bow down and worship him. You will notice that it says as they, some, as they bowed down, some were doubtful. We're not told why they were doubtful. We're not told who were doubtful. There's some different understandings of this passage. Some scholars will tell you that it's referring to when he met 500 people recorded in 1 Corinthians. Other scholars say, no, it's not that, but it's definitely other people there. Because I can tell you what every scholar agrees on is that every one of the 11 disciples were worshipping their friend, were worshipping the one true God. But we can understand this from this passage. In every crowd, there are those that are going to believe in Jesus and worship him. And in the same crowd, there are going to be those people who have not believed in Jesus, those who have doubts about who he really is. And I think this is the way, what Wes was challenging on. Many in our day and culture will be doubtful as well. But an important question we must ask ourselves is this. What group do you fit into? Do you believe in Jesus and are here to worship him? Have you made him Lord of your life? Is your life bowing down and worshipping? Or are you in the other group where you're still in doubt? I mentioned last week about worship. Worship involves both attitude and action, an attitude of love, reverence and respect, and an action of bowing, praising and serving. True worship involves the mind, the emotions and the will. You know, I think that one of the great encouragements or help that we can have to gain that kind of worship in our life is we need to see and get a new vision of what these disciples were seeing. The vision of Jesus as the written Lord of life. He was alive. I remember I was chatting once with a psychologist who was a Christian. And I asked him the same question that you get asked. And I was a Christian, but I said, what, what made you become a Christian? And he said, oh, it was easy. It was the 11 disciples that, that pushed me over the edge to become a Christian. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, how did they end up? I said, oh, they were martyred, all of them. And he said, that's what it was. 
he said, psychologically, no one, not 11, would do that. He said they were cured because they wouldn't say they didn't see Jesus alive. He said if you have a mass movement, he said maybe one or two of them, if they hadn't seen Jesus alive, he said maybe one or two of them would say, lie and say, yeah, I didn't die. But he said, not 11. He said they believed with their whole heart so much so they laid down their life. Jesus was the risen Lord. That's what tipped him over the edge. That's why he became a Christian. That's the people that are worshipping him. Why? Because they've seen him alive. Knowing Jesus has risen means he's conquered the humanly unconquerable enemies, the enemy of sin, the devil and death. Therefore, before them, he stood living proof of the risen Jesus. His friend, the sinless one, the grave and the devil could not hold him down. The one worthy of all honour, glory and power, the one worthy of that great response of worship was standing right before their eyes. And that's the great response. When verse 18 begins, it says, Jesus came up and spoke to them. Well, this tells me my second grade of this passage, a great presence. How often in life do we need Jesus to come near and speak to us? How often do you wish Jesus would just draw close and speak his words of life to you? Well, I can't help but think living out his great response of worship we've just spoken on brings his great presence. If you remember last week again, I said it's impossible for us to prohibit the presence and power of Jesus in our life because we refuse to join together in worship of him. We refuse to give Jesus the reverence that he is due. We refuse to recognise his worthiness within our own daily life, with our own daily routine. And then sadly, when we don't feel his closeness, when we don't think he's speaking to us, we say, why aren't we seeing these promises? that we are speaking of in the word, the promise of his presence. I'll never forget, it was um, after September 11, and it was Billy Graham's daughter was speaking at a conference. And they said, where was God when September 11th was happening? And she said, you know, the God I follow is a gentleman. We've kicked him out of our government. We've asked him to leave. We've asked him to leave our schools. We've asked him to leave our families. Chances are he's left. We've asked him to leave. You can't get that great promise, that great presence of Jesus Christ without a life of worship, without a life of bowing down, without a life of giving him, making him Lord of your life. We need to see Christ for who he is. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship is recognising that he is worthy of giving that reverence that is due to him. When you do that, when you lay your life down, when you worship him with boldness, when you do that great response, you receive that great presence. When our life is relying, relaying the great response to God like his disciples did, a response that says, we adore you, we love you, we want you to come near as the one true Lord and God. We want you to come and speak to us because I can see that you are the Lord of life. You have risen from the dead. That great response of worship receives his great presence. But the question should be asked, why give Jesus all that? Why? 
Why not just have him on a shelf and pray when you need to pray? Why bow down? Why make him Lord of your life? Doesn't Christianity get in the way sometimes? Well, that's my next great, because verse 18 continues. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He says all authority has been given to him, so Jesus is a great authority. This claim that Jesus makes about himself is a claim of great authority. So that means it's a claim that only God himself can make. The word authority in this verse means the right use of power. It's interesting when you read through the Gospel of Matthew, he stresses authority or uses this word quite a lot. He writes of the authority in his teaching in chapter 7, his healing in chapter 8, forgiveness of sins in chapter 9, and even over Satan in chapter 10. Now at the close of his gospel, Matthew makes it clear that Jesus has all authority. That's his words. By his death and resurrection, Jesus defeated all the enemies and won for himself all authority. It's been given to him. It's a great authority. Jesus does have all authority, not only in the heavens and above, but on the earth in which you live and in which I live. Since Jesus Christ today has all authority, we can obey him, we can worship him, we can bow down to him without fear. No matter where he leads us, no matter what circumstances we face in life, he has all authority. Do you know what that tells me? He is in control. 100%. He has all authority. He is in control. The early church we've been looking at over the past few weeks operated on the basis of the Lord's sovereign authority. They ministered in his name. They depended on his power and his guidance. They did not face a lost world in the basis of their own authority. They faced it on the authority of Jesus Christ. They had seen him alive and they took it to the next step. This enabled them to perform their mission. If we reside under the authority of Jesus, we too will have his authority to carry out the task he's designed us to do. Wes spoke on it about men's breakfast, and he's right. Justin commented and share of his mission in the God Squad. But you know what he said? He said, guys, that's me. That's my mission. And he put a challenge to us, go and find yours. Where is your mission? It may be to the person you work with. It may be when you go to work. It may be your family. If you're a grandparent and you take care of kids, um, it may be the people that come into your workplace. It may be who you go into your workplaces. Don't leave here thinking you don't have a mission. I hope to do fruitfulness on the front line here one day. But their thing is this, everyone has a mission. As you walk out those doors, it's welcome to your mission field. If you work with customers, you have a mission. If you've got family, you have a mission. Jesus Christ reigns from heaven on the throne in heaven. When you go out, you go under the same authority. He is our great authority. He's our mediator, provider and supplier. In his authority, we have everything necessary to complete his purpose for our lives here on earth. Just like those early believers in those early churches, because of the power and authority of Jesus, we have every reason to go forth with assurance 
and go forth with confidence. Jesus' authority intercedes for us and assures us that if God is for us, who can be against us? The problem with many Christians is they're not using the power that's made available them in Jesus Christ. Instead of taking the power and authority given to them in Christ, many of us in our own daily routine trust in our own power and our own ability. Some Christians are often fearful of what others may think of them or say about their beliefs. And I think Richard's right. In my first sermon here, I said, why preach? We only preach for one reason. If you remember, I said we preach Christ and him crucified. That's the mission of this church. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us power, love and self-discipline. People, problems and circumstances will try to make us think that our power or their power is greater than Jesus. But do not give in to their suggestions. Remember, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I remember in 1997, I had the privilege to go to a Hillsong conference, um, the campsite we worked out, paid for us staff to go. And I remember one pastor was there and he was speaking and he said, you know, he said, I get sick sometimes of people in my congregation telling me how big their problems are. He said, why don't they tell their problems how big their God is? Because their God is the one with all authority. And I remember him stamping on the thing. And he said, tell your problems. Hear that noise? Do you know what that noise is? That's my God coming. Look out. We follow a God with all authority on heaven and on earth. When a person moves forward with an unshakable relationship with Jesus, they move forward with the one who has all power and all authority. It's been given to him. Therefore, we need not fear. We need not hesitate. We need not look for another source of accomplishing all of God's will in our lives. We have it. Whatever your mission is, wherever it may be, God has done it for you. He has given you his great authority. That's when you can say there is victory in Jesus. The next thing we read is go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. This is a great command. Do you know when most people hear this passage or when this passage is preached on, they'll say things like, this is the great commission. Jesus told his disciples to go. That's the great command. Well, I'm here today to tell you if anyone's ever preached that to you, and I'm glad you didn't, they are wrong. Now, you may say, hang on, Garth, isn't your current point about a great command? Yes, it is. But surprisingly, the word go in this section isn't the great command. In fact, the Greek translation of go is not a command at all. The closest interpretation of go that we'd have would be going or as you go. The only command in this entire great commission is this, make disciples. That's the great command. So Jesus says, while you're going, no matter where you are or what you're doing, we should be witnesses for him and seek to win others for him and make disciples. 
So the great command is make disciples. In our day-to-day living, making disciples of all the nations. That's the great command. So we must ask, if we are to make disciples, what's a disciple and how do you make one? In Jesus' time, the term disciple was the most popular name for the early believers. Being a disciple meant more than being a convert or a church member. Warren Worsby says the closest thing to the disciple we have today in our English language is the word apprentice. A disciple is one who attaches himself to a teacher, identifies with them, learns from them, lives with them and learns their trade. He learnt not simply by listening, but also by doing. Imagine if you, I was a butcher, as you know, imagine if my four years of apprenticeship, all I did was stood there, watched and listened. But I never picked up a knife. I could never become a butcher. The closest thing we have to making disciples is an apprentice. They learn by listening to us, but also by doing what we do. I guess today we see disciple as one who has believed in Jesus Christ and follows him. So that's what a disciple is. But how do you make them? Well, Jesus answers that. This is how you make disciples. We make disciples by baptising them and by teaching them. Baptise literally means to immerse. It's a symbol of death and resurrection of both Jesus' life and ours. It represents a cleansing, purification from sin and sin's power over us. When you watch someone being baptised, what you're watching is someone going under that points to the death of their fleshly life that they once lived and was once uh, dominated by their appetite for sin. When they're coming out of the water, that points to their new resurrection life that is now controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's a statement of loyalty and devotion. Teaching. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. It is not enough to win people to the Jesus and baptise them. We must also teach them. Teach them what? (laughs) The word of God. That's what you teach people. You know, I love it when... um, when people come to Christ and there's a good follow-up, when there's a good discipleship, when that takes place, you'll find people stay longer. I had the privilege of coming to to Christ in the Church of Christ in Broken Hill. Once I became a Christian, it was book after book. The school teacher that led me to Christ took me through the four spiritual laws, the seven keys to, better not say I can't remember it, but there was book after book. I was taught what the word of God said and how it related to my life. Well, Jesus has opened up our minds to understand the scriptures. And now that's what we teach to others. So we have the great command to make disciples. We are to baptise them and teach them to obey. When we do this, we see believers who remain in the fellowship of Jesus for a long time. I remember a lecture at college used to say, one thing a kingdom of God needs is stayers. And how do you get people to stay? You teach them right. You train them right. When we do this, we see believers who are able to go out themselves and make their own disciples. 
by winning others to Jesus and teaching them to obey him. Making, baptising and teaching disciples as we live is our day-to-day life. It's a challenging command, but with that great command comes our final great from this passage. And surely I am with you to the very end of age. This is a great promise. This great promise Jesus promised to his disciples on that mountaintop over 2,000 years ago is still a great promise for us today. How can I claim that promise? Well, from a theological point of view, it's really impossible for Jesus to be with us anymore all the time. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus lied to his disciples, but we must remember from a strict theological standpoint, Jesus is still human. Once he left heaven, came to earth, he was human. He died as a human and he rose as a human. He can no longer be in two places at once. The Bible tells us where he is now. The Bible tells us that he's at the right-hand side of the Father. That's where he is. But the Bible also tells us once he left this earth, he gave the promise of sending the Holy Spirit. He had, if he had remained on earth, Jesus could not have fulfilled the promise of being with them always. It was when the Spirit came that Jesus could be with his people, no matter where they are. Because of the Holy Spirit that he sent to his disciples, we can be sure it gets sent to us as well. We can be assured that the Lord Jesus is with us. There are no conditions for you to meet. There is not even anything that you specially have to believe. Jesus has done everything needed for us to receive the Holy Spirit. The presence of Jesus is offered to every believer as they make their way through this world. Jesus promised to be with us all the days of our life. How does he achieve that? By sending the Holy Spirit. This is a promise that should keep us going on your mission field. Through the Holy Spirit, he will enable you. He will equip you. He will empower you to do everything that God and His Christ has asked you to do. And yes, that includes worship. Thank God for Jesus' powerful promise of being with us. That promise enables us to do everything he's called us to do, to say and to think. David Livingstone, a world-renowned doctor missionary from Africa. After he returned to his homeland of Scotland, he had a chance to speak of his service to God at Glasgow University. As he stood before those young men and women, the students of the college, he spoke of his past 16 years of serving in Africa. The tremendous price of those 16 years took on Livingston was plain to see by all the students sitting in the auditorium. You see, in his time in Africa, he got more than 27 fevers had flowed through his veins. This had left his body withered and wasted. He wasn't the man that left the college 27 years beforehand. He was frail and he was sick. Not only that, one arm hung useless at his side because he was mangled by a lion. 
The core of his message to the young people was this. Shall I tell you what sustained me amidst the toil, amidst the hardships, amidst the loneliness, amidst all my fevers and amidst all my animal beatings and my exile? It was that great promise that Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end. The presence of God which Livington experienced can be an experience that you and I live in today. I hope that you don't walk out and meet a lion and get your arm torn off. But if you do, Jesus is with you. Jesus, by means of his Holy Spirit, promised to always be with us, fulfilling his great commission. Always. What does that mean? It means always, every day. The days of strength as well as the days of weakness. The days of success as well as the days of failure. The days of joy as well as the days of affliction. The days of freedom as well as the days of temptation. The days of health as well as the days of sickness. The days of laughter as well as the days of sadness. The days of obedience as well as the days of disobedience. Jesus promised, I will be with you all days. Remember, he will be with you all the days of your life, right up to the day of your death. You, then you'll be with him. He will be with you and you'll be with him. You are not alone. Jesus promised, surely I'm with you to the end of this very age. It sustained that great missionary David Livingston and it can sustain you in your mission. Let God be praised for always being there with us every moment of every day of every life. So for me, that's the what's so great about the Great Commission. If we use this verse when it comes to mission, especially our mission, we can see some things. We should have a great response to him, a response of worship. We have a great presence. Jesus comes and talks to us through his Holy Spirit. We have a great authority because we're following the one that has been given all authority. We have a great command. Go and make disciples. Baptise them and teach them. And we have a great promise. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is with us always. As you go out into your mission field, I pray that these are the things you take with you. And then you too one day may be sick, you may be frail, you may have one arm, but you'll be able to stand up and say to someone, I knew through everything that Jesus was with me. That is our mission.